Sometimes in my head, when I'm at a place, and it just happened this morning, I will, <laughs> don't tell Pastor Mike, I was paying attention to the sermon. And you know how sometimes people talk and you can have several thoughts between the next thing that they say. Did that ever happen to you? Well, I'm, I'm looking and I'm paying attention to what he's saying. And then I'm thinking, what would happen if some dude just came in with a gun right now? And then I imagine myself like getting up and running and tackling PM and like taking bullets in my back for him. Or, or if he gets up there like karate chopping him to the throat. It's all sorts of disaster planning for possibilities. <laughs> I don't recommend you do that with your time. But that happens to me quite a bit. I plan for possibilities, potentialities. But there are some things that are inevitable that you should be ready for uh, and don't necessarily need to imagine it happening. You can know that for certain it's going to happen. Uh, the, you know, the pop quiz at school, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. You know that's going to take place, so you ought to be prepared for that. Uh, the big one, you know that's going to happen. It's a matter of when. Uh, it's not a matter of where. We know we live in one of the high, most highly tectonic activity places in the world, and so we ought to be prepared for that. Another inevitability is that someday, and I can't tell you when, but someday our very own beloved high school director will make a promise like this. He'll say, guys, if we can get, and he'll give a number, this many people to revival summer, I will shave my entire face, head, eyebrows, eyelashes, and everything. I'm happy to tell you that that day is here. Evan Jacobson has guaranteed that he would do this for the sake of the gospel if you guys would get, how many, 50 kids to revival? <laughs> 500 high school students. 500 high school students. You sure you didn't say 50? I feel like 50 is a little more reasonable. <laughs> Some things are, in, are inevitable. That's going to be what Evan looks like when he shaves his face. <laughs> but I digress. The inevitability that we're talking about this morning is not Evan shaving his face and head, although that would be funny. The inevitability is about the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible presents this as something that is not potential. You know, it's not like maybe happen, could happen. It's an actually going to happen. And the fact is proven by uh, the, the idea that he came, he lived, he died, and he resurrected. If you need any more proof than that, you're really asking for more than what is necessary or reasonable. And God says that someday Jesus is going to come back and you ought to be prepared for that. And to not be prepared, to not be ready for the return of Christ is to set yourself up for ruin. And devastation. In fact, because the Bible says no one knows when his return is, we ought to be ready at all times. And that's what leads us in today's text. We're going to look at the end of Mark chapter 13. Now, if you're paying attention to what we've been doing in the gospel of Mark, you know that I'm really not going verse by verse throughout the entire book. That's by design. We'd be in here for the, all four years of high school for some of you. Uh, but I do want to give you a good overarching idea of what's happening. And so in Mark chapter 13, we're skipping a lot of text. And what I encourage you to do is after this morning service, sometime this week, go through Mark chapter 13. In fact, it'd be even better for you to go through the whole gospel of Mark. You could do that in about 45 minutes, really. So go through the whole gospel of Mark and, and find out what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 13. Now you remember, I told you that this is Passion Week. Passion Week is the time when Jesus is going to do what? Die. Die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Jesus is going to die. And so it's important that Jesus includes this end time scenario, how the world is truly going to end right before he leaves. Now he's setting them up to realize I'm leaving. You ought to be prepared for this. And here's what's going to take place in the future. Jesus takes them to what is called the Mount of Olives. If you go to the Mount of Olives today, you can see that it over, overlooks the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock now sits, which is the Islamic you know, Dome of the Rock. It's where Islam has set up their fortress. But now uh, when Jesus is telling the disciples what's taking place, he's looking at the temple and he's telling them this. This is the backdrop, the context of what he's saying. He's saying when, when the day of the Lord comes, all these bad things are going to happen. And in fact, the temple, the temple that you see today that's glorious, which is going to be finished in about three years, it's going to be, actually three years before its destruction, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be upon another. And we talked about that, I think, last week when we said there's only one wall that's still standing. It's not part of the temple. It's the Western Wall, which is also called the Wailing Wall. Jesus says in the future that the temple is going to be destroyed and that's going to set off a new cataclysmic event that's going to end in devastation for all mankind. It's called the day of the Lord. Now, one of the things you should be familiar with is that the day of the Lord has both a near and far application, okay? The Bible sometimes does things like this where it'll give you a type and a shadow, a beginning, like a hint of something that is basically meant to say in the future, this type and shadow is going to reference something greater and ultimate, it's like the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, where you have the, the, the baby born of, born of a virgin. There was, a, there was a, an immediate fulfillment of that, not an actual kid who was born of a woman who never had sex, but a kid that was born who was the promised one, and a, and a lowercase p, promised one. But that pointed to a future kid who would be born of an actual virgin, and that was the greater fulfillment. The same thing is true with the day of the Lord. There's a lesser fulfillment that God promised both to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That lesser fulfillment is this. The day of the Lord, and as you'll notice here, some of, it's kind of hard for you to see if you're in the back, so first row sitters, you're rewarded because now you can read this. The day of the Lord is not used in positive terms. You can see it here, right? For some of you, you can read it. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. And on and on it goes. All throughout Scripture, you'll see the way that the day of the Lord is referred to is not something pleasant. Look at Joel chapter 1, verse 15 there. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty One, it comes. It's always echoed. And here's what Scripture does. It carries a thread all the way through the entirety from Old Testament through the New Testament. The idea is that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment for sinners. I told you that there's a near and far application for this. The near application is that the day of the Lord was applied to the northern kingdom, also called Israel. The northern kingdom was composed of the 10 northern tribes, and God said the day of the Lord is coming because you've been so disobedient, you've sacrificed to idols, you've fed your babies to Molech. Therefore, the day of the Lord is coming, and what's going to happen is that your land is going to be taken from you. The northern kingdom was eventually ransacked by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and that was a day of the Lord. God also predicted through the prophets that a day of the Lord would be given to Judah. Judah was by far, uh, was by far uh, more favored of God, but they still had their issues. And you know, in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and ransacked Judah, and they experienced a day of the Lord. In fact, there's Psalms that are written about it. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, there we wept when we remembered Zion, because they... Oh, and that's one of the, the challenging psalms, too, because in that very same psalm, it says, Blesses the one who takes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. 
Why? Because that's what the Babylonians did. Babylonians did that to Judah. It was a day of the Lord. It was God's judgment being inflicted upon his people through different entities. Day of the Lord, good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. It's a day of judgment. So that takes us to our text. Jesus is talking about the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And then, and then at the end of chapter 13, he's now going to say, here's how you should respond knowing that the end is near. Okay? And I'm using air quotes because near is a relative term and we don't know how near or far it is. But here's what he says, starting at verse 32. He says, but concerning that day, the day of the Lord, or that hour, the specific time it takes place, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands a doorkeeper to stay awake. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus closes this section by saying, there's a time that you need to be prepared for, and you're not going to know when it's going to happen. In fact, if you look at the whole timeline of the end, this is how, okay, so let me, let me preface what I'm about to say with something you need to hear. If you have a friend or uh, you have a friend of a friend, a family member who says, that's not what's going to happen at the end. My pastor told me something different. Or my youth pastor said that this was going to happen, that there actually is no millennium. We're in the millennium. Or that there is no rapture. <laughs> the rapture is not going to take place. Let me just say two things about that. Number one, be gracious. What, what we're talking about when it comes to the end times, there's disagreement upon. And I think we're right on this because we're looking at scripture and we're taking it at face value in most respects. But if they, if they disagree with you or us, that's okay. You don't have to throw rocks at them. You don't have to tag their house or TP anything. You could just say, okay, I respect your opinion. Um, this is one of those areas where it's important, but not, uh, not primary, where if they believe something different, they're, you know, they're, they're no longer taking part of the gospel. This is not a gospel issue. This is an important issue, but this is what our church believes and teaches, and here's how it works out. So following from, uh, from, from the present church age, present church age started when Jesus was ascended. When Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, that's when the church age began because then he told them, hey, go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. Remember, that's the whole commission. Then the next thing we're waiting for is what? The rapture. We're gonna spend a little time talking about that, but the rapture is the next thing. And here's what you need to know about that. There is no warning sign for the rapture. The rapture can, in theory, happen right now. In this very moment, Jesus could come, take his bride away, and we're gone. We'll talk more about that. But after that, you have seven years of what is called tribulation. The first three and a half years are known as the beginning of sorrows. The last three and a half years are called the great tribulation, when the judgment is poured out. But also seven years are called the years of tribulation. At the end of that, Christ comes back. This is his official second coming. The, first, the time when he picks us up and takes us in the rapture, we don't consider his second coming because he doesn't actually make it all the way to earth. The saints meet with him in the clouds, and from there, we go back to heaven with him. Until then, we're kind of just, we're, we're waiting. There's, a, there's still a waiting period. Jesus never makes, his, never makes touchdown back on the earth until the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And now you have a literal thousand-year time frame where Jesus is ruling and reigning from where? Jerusalem. 
Jesus is physically reigning. He is now fulfilling all of the covenant promises made to the people of Israel through David's line. He now fulfills that fully and completely. This is that situation where the lion and the lamb are hanging out together, where everything is in almost fully restored. I say almost because this period gets really interesting because there are people who are going to live in the millennial time who still, get this, will refuse to be followers of Jesus Christ. I, I don't get it. I don't get how that is, but that it is, is a fact. And we know that because at the end of the age, at the end of this millennial time frame anyway, the devil, who is Satan, will be released and he will make war against the sun. And this is called the battle of Armageddon. Of course, it's a no contest. Jesus squashes him. Uh, but there are people that side with the enemy, by the way. There are people that side with the enemy who say, we don't want Jesus to rule over us. We don't like this. This leads into the final judgment. This is the great white throne judgment that Pastor Mike preached about last, last, uh, last summer, where the great and small stand before the throne, the books are open, and people are judged eternally. When that is finally and fully completed, we then enter into the eternal state where there is no death, no sorrow, no sin, no nada. We're now entering into the full expression of what humanity is supposed to be. The earth is recreated, restored to its perfect conditions. Humanity is given rulership. As Christians, we're given rule and reign over the creation that God designs for us. And now for the rest of eternity, we live in a new reality. Amazing. That is a synthesis of what the scripture teaches about the end times. Who has a question about that? Nobody. You have a question. Okay, thank you for being honest, Christina. Everyone else, I know you have questions that are yet to be answered. And let me tell you, this sermon is not going to answer the questions for you. In fact, it's probably going to create more questions, at least sometimes. Um, and here's the thing. I, when you come to small groups this Wednesday, I have one question that really deals with eschatology. Eschatos is Greek for the end times, and that's where we get the word eschatology from. So we're only going to spend one question on this. But if you do have questions, it might be worth throwing in the question of the week, because I know you're going to have stuff that's not going to be answered in this. But I told you the next event on the calendar is the rapture. We get that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So follow along with me. I want to show this to you really quick because it's important to our point here. And we're going to get to point number one really soon, I promise. But this is imperative. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, Paul, this is Paul to the Thessalonian church. Uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And he uses asleep uh, as a euphemism. It's people that are actually dead. Don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What's he saying? Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So the imagery here is Jesus parting the clouds. There's a trumpet sound and then there's an angel that commands something. Uh, he's using this angel to command them to himself. And what's happening here? Look at this, the second half of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first, which is to say those who were found in Jesus. So even right now, from the year 33 AD all the way till today, you have people who put their faith in Christ who are going to rise from the dead. This is what's called a what? What's an, it starts with an R, ends with resurrection. This is a resurrection. This is Jesus saying, from all who are dead, rise. It's going to be an incredible event. 
He says, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come down. He's going to have an archangel prepare the way and command them to come up from the grave. And they rise. Verse 17. Then we who are alive. So let's just say it happens right now. This is talking about us. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And I put it in parentheses for you. Raptured. That's That's where we get the word from. Raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You'll notice he never touches down on the ground here. He never makes it to earth. We meet him in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul saw these words as an encouraging thing that they should be grateful for because what this meant then is that whether you lived or died in Christ, you were going to make it in the rapture. If you died right now and Jesus came a week from today, you would be part of the rapture. In fact, you would go first and then we would go and meet you in the sky together with him and then we'd go be with the Lord. The whole idea behind showing you this is that Jesus is talking about, and here's what, Mark 13 can be a little challenging when you read it. Let me just tell you that. It can be challenging to read. You're going to have to study hard to make it make sense to your mind. But at this part of the text, what's happening is Jesus is talking, I think, to a future generation of Christians, but with application for us today. And I think the application comes when we realize that Jesus could come back at any time, even now, and that time is the rapture. My first point to give you is that when someone comes to you and says, hey, Christian, my teacher at my church is promising that he knows when Jesus is coming back and you should come to our church because that's where he's given out all the information. Point number one, you should not fall for predictions by experts because Jesus makes it clear, no man knows the day or the hour. He can come back at any time, so you should be prepared all the time. No one knows when Jesus is actually coming back. Whether it be the rapture or whether it be his actual second coming, No one knows. You might think to yourself, well, Pastor Rod, does anyone even believe that? Does anyone think that they know that he's coming back? Yeah. In fact, about 10 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Harold Camping who had this massive advertising scheme. Not a scheme as in like he was underhanded. I think he was genuine and honest. He was just genuinely wrong. But he advertised all over the country. And some of us who are older than you in the room remember this. There was a time when you saw uh, signs on the road that says, Judgment Day is May 21st, 2011. And so your job was to tune into family radio so that you could hear from Harold Camping about the end being near. People believed him. A lot of people believed him. In fact, some people believed him so much that they sold their houses, liquidated all of their funds, and paid for more advertising. One guy, uh, they interviewed him on the sidewalk. I was looking at videos about this. And they said, hey, you've spent your entire life savings to promote this. And he says, oh, yeah, most of it. Thinking, wow, he gave up everything because he thought the end was truly near. These guys were all over the place. New York City was a hotspot, but they were all over. They made, it, they made sure that everyone knew, because they thought that was the case, that Judgment Day was going to be May 21st, 2011. The day finally comes. What do you think happened on May 21st, 2011? Nothing. Of course, news reaches out on May 22nd to Harold Camping and they find that his, he's not answering his phone. A couple days later, he finally makes a statement. This is Harold, by the way. He makes a statement. You would think that at this point he would say, well, you know, I, Scripture says no man knows the day or the hour, so I, sh- I should not have said this. I'm so sorry. We're going to do everything we can to get the money back to the people who spent it. But instead... He said, you know what? I looked at the data. I was wrong. It's actually October 21st, 2011. So Harold kicks the ball down the field, and he does this again another six months later. And what do you think happened on October 21st, 2011? 
Nothing. And the end never came. I really want to make just a few quick points off of this. And, and really, the, the first thing I, I want for you as, as a Christian is to really be aware that there are people like him who I do believe is sincere. He died, by the way, not too long ago. I do believe he was sincere. He thought he figured it out. He thought he cracked the code. Though really, when it comes down to it, young person, you need to say, okay, what's the scripture teach me about the end of days? There are certain things we can know, but when it comes to the day or the hour, no man knows, and that's exactly what Jesus says. In fact, he says, you shouldn't trust people who call, this is the end of times, this is the exact day and hour. Why? First of all, because Jesus didn't know. If Jesus doesn't know, why do you know? How how is it possible that you think you could know if Jesus himself doesn't know? Now, for some of you, that might cause a stumbling block because I thought Jesus was God. If he's God, then how can he not know anything? God knows everything. And that's a really good question because what you have to deal with then is the full humanity of Christ. When we talk about Jesus, we, I, we, I've said this last week, and we're going to say it again because it's so important. We tend to emphasize the one aspect of his character, not the other. Jesus is both fully what and fully what? Fully God and fully man. We're okay with the fully God part, but we struggle to understand how he is both fully God and fully man together. It's called the hypostatic union. Why is that the case? How does that work? Well, there's a certain sense, if you read it in in Philippians chapter 2, in fact, write it down, reference this. You're going to use this later on, I trust. If you come to small groups, go to Philippians chapter 2 in small groups and read about how Christ put on flesh and what that meant for him. In fact, Scripture says that he, uh, he emptied himself. Now, when you and I think about emptying, we think about like pouring something out, right? A glass is full, and then you pour it out, and then it's empty. But when Scripture talks about Jesus emptying himself, it actually talks about him putting something on it. Taking on what? The form of a servant, says Philippians 2. So when Jesus empties himself, it's taking on flesh and saying, I'm going to take on the form of a servant. I'm going to take on humanity, full humanity, to the point that I am willingly going to choose not to, uh, I'm not going to uh, demand to use my divine prerogative. I'm going to choose instead to not know things and leave it to the Father, which is why we can say Jesus lived his entire life by the power of the Spirit. And only when the Spirit led him to use his divine authority did he ever use it. Until then... He remained ignorant even of his own return. That's incredible. Jesus didn't know because he chose not to know. Jesus didn't know because he didn't use his divine prerogative. Jesus didn't know because he was fully human and he never blurred the lines in his his earthly ministry. Jesus didn't know. The angels didn't know. Angels still don't know, actually. The angels are close to God. They spend time with God. They see him. They're sinless. They're perfect. They bow at his throne day and night, and yet they didn't overhear anything about the end of days. The angels don't know. By the way, the apostles still don't know. <laughs> when the apostles asked Jesus, okay, so picture this in your mind. Acts chapter 1, Jesus had just given them the great commission, go therefore make disciples, um, and then he meets them, Before he ascends, and they say, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to start the end time events. And here's what Jesus says in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. He says, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you now, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time where you're going to rule and reign from Jerusalem? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Two things to note from that. He tells the apostles, you're not going to know. But what what do you not notice that Jesus What do you you notice that Jesus doesn't say here? He says nothing about himself. Post-resurrection, Jesus knew. Because he says it's not for you to know. 
the times that the Father has set. Implication, I know, but you don't know it. He's not doing like a na-na-na-na-boo-boo thing. He's just saying, I'm in my glorified state now. I do know, you don't know, but that's okay. The apostles don't know. Jesus didn't know. The angels don't know. Implication, y'all don't know. No one (laughs) knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. I'm trying to say it as many different ways as I can because it's that important. You need to be aware that people will try to deceive you and, and make you believe that they do know. But Jesus is saying, no man knows the day or the hour. No person does. So what then? What do we do with that? What's that supposed to do for us? Well, verse 32, verse 35 rather, helps us out with that. Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Verse 34, he says, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. I'm going on a journey. You don't know when I'm coming back. So be ready, be ready, be prepared. Implication, don't get lazy, get busy. It's kind of like the idea of if your parents leave, they, they leave home, and they leave you in charge and say, hey, uh, Matt, please you know, vacuum the rug, wash the dishes, uh, clean the garage. Here's a long list of things that they want you to do as they leave. They go on date night, and then they come back. They want it all done. So Matt looks at his watch and realizes, oh, I got a couple hours. They're going to be out until 10 or 11. So I got some time. So the first several hours, Matt's watching, uh, you know, Matt's watching Peppa Pig and Doc McStuffins. And he's just chilling. But then he hears the garage and not realizing that all these hours had passed. They walk in and say, Matt, what are you doing? Watching Peppa Pig. And he's caught, you know, red-handed watching this kid's show, which is an issue all by itself, but we're not going to address that. But he's constantly, kind of well, I, don't, I, thought you, I thought I had time. I thought, I thought you were going to be gone for a while. The same application is true for us. When Jesus says, I'm going on a journey and I'm coming back, you don't know when, but be ready. Be ready. Don't, grow, don't get lazy. Don't get slack. And in fact, point number two, put it like this. Stay focused on your mission. You've got a job to do. Do that job. And do it to all your might. Don't get lazy. Don't, don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. Don't feel like you have all the time in the world. Do what God has given you to do. Some of you may not know this, but today is a Super Bowl. There's two teams that are playing. Maybe three, I think. There's two at least. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. There's four. The quarterback for the, the Niners is nicknamed Jimmy G. I like that. <laughs> Jimmy G has a contract for $137,500,000 over five years. The same as me. But it wasn't enough to give him that much money because I, 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 I was reading information about his contract and apparently... He gets, okay, so there's a signing bonus, okay? I, I guess, like, you sign the contract. Here, here's money because you signed the contract. That was $7 million. He gets a roster bonus, which I think means, hey, your name is on our list. Here's more money. He got $150,000 for, for the roster bonus. $150,000 for having his name on the list. He also gets $600,000 for, get this, a workout bonus. Like, if you work out, we're going to give you money. It's not enough that you play the game. We're going to give you money for working out. Well, okay. So now you have this $137 million athlete. Okay. He gets to the game today, shows up 30 minutes late. He's in his sweatpants. He's got his, you know, he's got his shirt on. It's all stained. Oh, is there a game today, guys? My bad, my bad. 
Well, let me go get me one. I'm gonna go change and I'll come back. Okay. Jimmy G goes to the locker room, changes. He's suited up. He comes out. They put him in. Jimmy, we need you. We're down by this many points. Jimmy, instead of being focused, he's looking around and saying, This is a nice stadium. I think I know that guy over there, you know? And then he hikes it and then he just kind of, what do you call that when you hit the, spikes it, spikes the ball. And the coach says, What are you doing, Jimmy G? He says, I don't really feel up to it. I got this tummy ache. It's kind of bothering me. I had some bad pizza last night. And so they're, they're patient with Jimmy, though. They're patient with Jimmy. As Jimmy is preparing for the next play, he gets distracted. He walks to the sidelines and starts talking to people. Hey, what are you guys going to do this next weekend? Oh, this is cool, isn't it? We're in the Super Bowl. Amazing. I would imagine that his head coach would probably come to him and maybe share some pleasant words first and then say things like, Jimmy, you are a multi-million dollar investment. You have a job to do. Go do that. You have a team to serve. Go serve them. You have a game to win. Go win it. You know, like, bam, kicking the dude. I bet that's kind of like how God thinks about us when we get lazy in the same way. We don't realize that we're in the game called life. And I know it's not a game game, but we're in the game. And God is saying, get your head in the game. You have a job to do. You have a church to serve. You have a goal to accomplish. Go do that thing. Oh, and by the way, you are worth a lot more than $137.5 million. Why? Why? Take a look here. He's a man going, Jesus is a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge. Who are those servants? Those servants are not random Joe Schmoes. They're people in this room who Jesus bought with his blood. There was no signing bonus. There's no workout bonus. There's no roster bonus. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, which by the way, put a dollar figure on Jesus' blood for me, if you will. Go ahead. Would you say more or less than $137.5 million? We would say that Jesus' blood is infinitely precious. So how do you stay on mission? You, re- you got to remember, you are a redeemed steward. You have been bought with a price. Jesus died for you. He bled on the cross for your sin. He gave you his righteousness. And now he brings you into his kingdom and employs you as a servant of his house. You're bought with a price. You're worth more than Jimmy G. How's that feel? You are worth more than Jimmy G. Not in an ultimate sense, I guess, but because you were bought with Jesus. And if Jimmy G ever became a Christian, I don't know if maybe he is a Christian. If Jimmy G ever became a Christian, he would be worth more than his salary too. You're a steward. You've been given a job by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom, whom you have from God? You are not your own young person, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Instead of saying, Pastor Ron, you know, the second coming of Christ is exciting. I, I want to go. Take me away, Jesus. It's not that we're supposed to be navel-gazing and selling your property and for, forgetting school and getting rid of your job. Jesus is saying you have a job to do. I've bought you to do some work. Don't pay attention to when I come back. Pay attention to what I've given you to do and just know that I'm coming back. You have a, you're a redeemed steward. You have a church to serve. Jimmy G, you have a job to do. You have a team to serve. Young person, you have been bought with a price. You have a church to serve. 
Whatever God has given you to do, do that with all your might. Jesus doesn't want you thinking about his return. He wants you at work busy. That's the whole thrust of this passage here. He says, I don't want you to get lazy. I put my servants in charge, each with his work. Each one of you has work to do for God. And you get to do that work, which means you can either be lazy and kind of skirt around and serve underneath your capacity, or you can serve to the capacity that God has given you. Maybe one of you guys in here really does have a great arm and you're the next Jimmy G. But if you only played Pop Warner and you never exercised yourself to go to the NFL, I think you'd be doing a disservice to the people that you should be serving. The same idea is true for us as Christians. If you have an ability to serve and you're not giving your church the greatest effort of your labor, you're cheating your church and you're cheating your master. God's house. You serve it with excellence. Not only do you have a church to serve, you have a mission field to harvest. Jimmy G throws touchdowns. We preach the gospel to the lost and we hope to see them saved. I already quoted this to you, but Matthew 28, 18 to 20 tells us our marching orders for the church were to make disciples. And that means that we're to do that. That's what it means to be on task for God. Not only are we serving our church, but we're making every effort wherever we are to proclaim Christ and make his glory known. Our waiting is not passive, it's active. His last verses really make that clear for us. He says, therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Read Jesus' words again there. See those? And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He understands that we're fickle and we're weak and our, our, our tendency is to be lazy and not to be vigilant. So when he says stay awake, I think that's exactly what we're supposed to take away from that. Remain vigilant as you wait. We're staying active. There was a time in our nation's history where we were caught off guard. We weren't vigilant. There was a time in our nation's history where we had warnings and signals that should have prompted us to be prepared for what was about to happen. But you know what happened is we dropped the ball. We don't have a lot of footage of that time, but there was a movie that was made, so I thought I'd show you what happened as a result of that. Hey, guys, what are you doing? Oh, you're in the paper. <laughs> I assume we're going to get volume in a minute. Until then, you help me make sounds. Oh, no, we got one. Okay, great. That's better.
We were caught off guard December 7th in 1941, despite the fact that we had radar that showed these planes heading our direction. The commanding officer who was in charge of responding to this said, don't worry, we have a fleet of B-52s on their way, just let it pass. And so the officer who was sitting at the, at, the, at the radar said, okay, we'll let it go. There was more than one warning that we as a nation ignored, and I'm not pointing blame, obviously, this is a tragic time in our, in our nation's history, but my point is that we, for that moment in time, lacked vigilance. We were not alert. We were not awake. We were not prepared. And the same thing can happen in the Christian life, which is why you, Christian, need to have, oops, vigilance. <laughs> you need to have vigilance. See how quickly I responded that that was vigilant. Okay. You need to have vigilance. How do you do that? Well, Jesus says, stay awake, stay alert, stay ready. You got to, first of all, make sure that your weapons are always ready. And I guess really when it comes down to it, I don't mean your, your physical weapons, even though I know some of you do have weapons on hand almost at all times which I'm actually comforted by <laughs> so, most of the time. <laughs> you need to have your weapons sharp and ready. The weapon that you have primarily is, I think I heard it. I'm, I'm, you guys are very, ten, uh, the Bible maybe? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. The word of God, the sword of the spirit. This is the weapon that you have. And this is the weapon that you have to keep sharp. In fact, what you should do with your word, like people who care about their weapons, they sharpen them every day. Eric Matthews loves his knives. If you ever talk to Eric Matthews, ask him, show me your knife, pull it out. He always has one and he'll tell you about the, he'll tell you about the material. He'll tell you about the handle. He'll tell you where the, where the stuff is from. Like he uses words and I'm like, it sounds like you're talking about science fiction. Like this is vibranium and it's super powerful and the guy knows his weapons well. And I thought, what a good analogy to how we should know our Bible. We should know our Bible so well that it's sharp, that we're always ready. You cut us, we bleed scripture. We know it inside and out, backward and forward. That's got to be our aim. And anything less than that is really laziness on our part. And I know what that feels like, young person. I'm not pointing fingers at you without having several pointing back at me. I know what that feels like. But our idea here is Christian vigilance requires us to be ready with our weapon. Second, we ought to be in constant contact with headquarters. Some people treat prayer, uh, as one author put it, like a, like a domestic intercom. Uh, some, you know, you guys can use Alexa. You can tell Alexa to send a message to the other rooms. Like, come down for dinner, bring me a waffle. Whatever you want to say on them, domestic intercom, it's like, oh, it's cool. It's copacetic, right? No, no big deal. But God doesn't want you to use prayer like Alexa, a domestic intercom. He wants you to use prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie. It's commanding and calling for God to do things to advance his kingdom and his mission. Prayer is meant to be keeping you watchful and wakeful at all times, which is why in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going to say to them, watch, stay here and watch, watch and pray with me. Jesus says to them, watch and pray. That's the whole idea here. Staying in constant contact with headquarters, not just for your physical comforts, but for much better things like the squad that he's given you. 
Be protective of your squad. The people around you, if you're a Christian and they're Christians, you want to be jealous for their holiness. You want to care for them so much that you are wielding your weapon, uh, staying in contact with headquarters for them, and you're asking them deep and penetrating questions. Your small group ought to be more than just a hangout crew. It ought to be something where every now and then I'll see cool things. In fact, I saw a text thread just this last Wednesday where I was like, that's exciting. I saw a text thread about young men who were encouraging other young men to invite, to pray for someone's salvation. And I thought, that's incredible. I love seeing that. And I wish that all of us had the same mentality, not just for the lost, but for one another, where there's a jealousy to see each other grow in Christ. That when we're praying for each other, have you ever had the experience where you're praying for someone and you feel so much more bold to ask them questions? Because you're praying for them. You care about them. And so you don't feel timid about saying, hey, how's your walk going? How's your, how's your problem with cursing coming along? Are you, are you fighting that? Are you winning that war? How's your problem with pornography going? I'm praying for this. Are you fighting this well? Prayer has that effect on people. If you care about your squad, you ought to be protective and jealous for their holiness, jealous for their focus on the end. Because I'm telling you, sometime Jesus is going to come back, and when that time comes, it's over. There's no second chances. And I've seen students from this very ministry, I've been here long enough now, in fact, I'll get to see my very first class through in June, May, this year. I'll take my very first class all from freshman year, eighth grade actually, right? Eighth grade all the way through senior year. And in that time frame, I've seen kids come and I've seen kids go. And not all of them go Christian. Some of them leave under the worst circumstances. And I kid you not, I remember putting my arms around a student and saying, don't do this. Begging, literally begging with tears, saying, don't do this. Defecting, leaving Christ, leaving the church and saying, I can't, I can't do this with you guys. When it came down to, they wanted their sin more than they wanted their Christ. You ought to care for your people and keep them focused on the end that Jesus is coming back and we ought to be ready for that. You ought to be prepared for the inevitable. There's one thing that I'm preparing for that is inevitable. Kristen is pregnant, in case you didn't know. And one of the things that that does for us is that's making us prepared. We have a go bag. I have a go bag. I don't know if Kristen does. I have a go bag. I constantly have my battery charged. I turn off my notification or turn on my notifications at all times. So I'm always, like if I'm at work and she's at home, I just send texts like, hey, baby time? Is it time? Is it time? Sometimes I ask, did you have the baby without me? Did you? <laughs> just to make sure, just to make sure she's not doing that without me. But because, because I have every expectation that baby's on her way, it changes the way I live right now, right? It changes the way I live right now. For instance, I always have a plan B now. Like I, I know today is a Super Bowl. I'd like to watch that. But if Kristen goes into labor, what am I going to do? I thought I'll watch it on my phone and watch her deliver. Like I could do both. <laughs> You know, one of those things. Or I can just set it next to her and then do both at the same time, where it's like I'm delivering. Just kidding, I won't do that. If, if by chance I couldn't finish this sermon, I told Evan, you better be ready. In the middle of my sermon, I'm going to get up and walk out, and you're going to finish this thing. And he's like, all right, I'm ready for that. Plan B. Because of what we expect and know to be true, we live differently. And that's the effect that our expectation of Jesus' return ought to have on us. Because we know he's coming back, that ought to change how we live right now. 
How are you doing with that? We said we shouldn't fall for predictions by experts. We should stay focused on our mission and remain vigilant as we wait. Why? Because Jesus is coming back and we don't know when that is. We ought to be prepared at all times. Let's pray.